You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Melissa Hurst. Welcome to season two. 2021 is certainly off to an interesting start. The storming of the Capitol building by rioters on January 6th marked the latest chapter in the country's transition from President Trump to President-elect Biden. The weeks since we learned the results of the November 3rd election have been filled with volatility, skepticism, and misinformation. But tomorrow we hope to see Biden's administration kick off with a peaceful inauguration. Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be sworn in amidst a deadly pandemic and deep partisanship that has many fearing for the future of our country. In this tumultuous moment, we're taking a second to reflect on some of the most momentous inaugurations of presidents past and some of the country's less than peaceful transitions with historian Susan Shulton. So for most of my lifetime, at least, inaugurations have felt fairly procedural. Um, Given the state of unrest and partisanship that we're seeing right now, Biden's inauguration is feeling just a little bit different. (laughs) Historically, what has been the significance of inaugurations? Well, that's a great way to start, Alyssa, because in my lifetime, too, um, and I'm a lot older than you are, um, most inaugurations have been procedural, right? There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. We hear hail to the chief, some popular entertainers sing, maybe some people read poetry, but largely it's a day of celebration, a largely ceremonial uh, procedure. And yet I think that, ceremonial dimension is part of the point. And the reason we realize that now is that we're in a very, very unsettled situation. The havoc of the last week and of the really the last few months, given um, the challenge to the election has highlighted just how much we assume that the inaugural represents the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, And we can see that the whole point of that ceremony is to underscore stability and continuity. The outgoing and the incoming presidents both participate and that ceremonial handoff builds the public's confidence. In other words, the whole point is for it to be a little bit boring and procedural as you you said, Um, the peaceful transition of uh, power is the cornerstone of representative democracy. So I'd love to talk about that idea of peaceful transition of power a little bit more throughout this election cycle and even up to this inauguration. That hasn't been guaranteed. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about why this particular democratic value has been so important to us, to this country. Has it always been so highly valued? And what really makes it central to our process? Uh, I think if you um, throw your attention backward, you can see that this goes back to the very foundation of the republic. So the most contentious first election was uh, the election of 1800. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Democratic Republican was the victor and he for the first time represented a victor that would mean the transfer of the office from one party to another. In other words, it's the first time the presidency itself is switching parties. And so you can imagine how important it was for the public to see those reins of power being smoothly handed from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson. And in his inaugural, Jefferson acknowledged that. He famously said, quote, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists, unquote. And that crucial message was not just 
uh, rhetoric, right? It was really meant to underscore that he was a president for both parties. The uh, country was deeply uh, divided politically and Jefferson's statement and his gesture laid down a model for subsequent inaugurations, particularly when they represent a shift between parties. Yeah, I I'm curious if you can go into a little bit more what that partisanship looked like back then. You said that we were deeply divided and uh, what was causing that divide at the time? It was an incredibly um, divisive period over substantive issues, but also personal. If you read the newspapers of that time, right, it really does echo some of our own deeply emotional divisions today. Um, so there are divisions about the degree to which the United States should be involved in French affairs, the degree to which the country should be thinking about internal improvements and um, perhaps raising money, the ideological foundations of the two parties. But remember that part of it was because as the country was so new, the whole idea of political parties was new. And so Americans were really kind of sorting out what does it mean to have a two-party system or a multi-party system? Kind of building off of that, this isn't the first time that a peaceful transfer of power has been threatened. The transition from Buchanan to Lincoln after the 1860 election came right at the precipice of civil war. So how did that play out? Well, and that's the one that I have to admit, most people want to talk to me <laughs> right. about, and hopefully it's not a blueprint, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> but uh, in 1860, of course, there was deep division over slavery, and that meant not just an election between two parties, but an election between four parties. The North and the South split among four different parties. And yet anyone who was paying attention in 1860 was fairly certain that the Republican Party, the newest party, would prevail because it had the um, weight of those northern population states. And the Republican Party was devoted to the principle that Congress had not just the right, but the obligation to prevent slavery from moving into the American West. So given that the victory of Lincoln was not a surprise, what came next was not necessarily altogether a surprise. And that was that South Carolina, followed by other Gulf states, made good on their promise to leave the Union, to secede from the Union. Now that was the ultimate rejection of the American democratic process and the electoral system. Rather than live under a Republican administration, which they considered hostile to the interests of slaveholders, they would rather leave the country. And so the inauguration, which comes at the depth of that secession crisis in March, is one of the most important speeches in our history and very much one of the most important inaugural addresses. In that speech, Lincoln makes clear that Southern secessionists are not leaving because of any corruption or because their rights have been violated, but because they lost an election. And the crucial thing there is that Southern secessionists believed the Republican Party to be illegitimate. The second part is that in that inaugural address, Lincoln makes clear that he will defend the union, that he will use his executive authority to preserve the country whole, and that secession is nothing more than anarchy. And his statement of a strong union an organic union that cannot be broken, of course, 
prevails only after four years of bloodshed. I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit more on the parallels that you see between that election and this one, especially because, as you mentioned, there are so many people asking you about this particular one. Well, and that's a tough one because, of course, it involves the rejection of the election, like I said, and we see the rejection of the election today. Um, And yet those Southerners who considered the Republican Party illegitimate um, made the ultimate move, I guess, which is to not challenge the legitimacy of the election, but to leave the country altogether. I think that, of course, the biggest difference is that we are not divided geographically. Our divisions are are not minor, but they do not fall along the same clear ideological and geographical lines that they did in 1860. And hopefully that is the biggest lesson for us is that this is not Fort Sumter, right? Um, The divisions that bedevil us are serious and must be addressed, but they do not directly echo those of 1860. I think that's important context for people to have for sure. Uh, So I'd love to talk about, I think you've offered some great anecdotes, some great stories from history so far. I'd like to talk about if there are any other particularly fraught transitions that you think are worth bringing up in the context of what we're dealing with right now. Well, another fraught transition, although it's a very different order, but it's one that happens during a crisis, uh, which is the aftermath of the election of 1932, when the country is at the depth of the Great Depression. Um, Franklin Roosevelt resoundingly defeats Herbert Hoover in the election of 1932, and the American people are left to wait for four months uh, for the inauguration, of course. This is a time when presidents are inaugurated in March after the election rather than January, which comes after the 20th Amendment. And so in that long four-month interregnum, the nation is reaching an average of 25% unemployment, uh, an enormous banking crisis, which is accelerating. Europe is descending towards fascism, and there is deep unrest here at home. That lengthy waiting period uh, really does, I think, exacerbate the crisis. Um, President Hoover doubles down on his belief that relief is around the corner and that we don't need to do anything to directly address the crisis, that it is a a normal, uh, I would say, element or aspect of capitalism. Um, And the ideological differences between Hoover and FDR begin to really emerge. And those were not necessarily clear in the election because FDR didn't really know what he was going to do. Um, But by the time of the inauguration, he decides to take a much more activist, aggressive, assertive approach. And his inaugural address reflects that. Why do you bring that one up when we talk about what we're about to see with the inauguration? What about that one resonates with you uh, in terms of this this time period? There's a couple of elements that really resonate with me. Uh, The first is that FDR comes in with an incredible sense of urgency. Joe Biden issued a similarly ambitious $1.9 trillion rescue package, not just around the coronavirus vaccine rollout, but of course the economic crisis that we face among other things. And so what what reminds me of FDR is the ambition, right? The deep sense that we're gonna hit the ground running, that he's gonna call on Congress to cooperate with him in the same way that FDR called upon Congress to 
come to a session of 100 days, right, and consider and take seriously his flurry of legislation to address the economic crisis. So having the benefit of hindsight, looking back at some of these time periods where the peaceful transfer of power was maybe not as peaceful as we would have liked to have seen, uh, what do you think that we can learn and what do you think we can apply to how we view this Biden inauguration? One thing that comes to mind is that if, if you look at history, some of the most significant and memorable inaugural addresses come not just when we have the transfer of power from one party to another, but inaugurals that come in the midst of a crisis. So I mentioned Thomas Jefferson and that partisan crisis, Abraham Lincoln and the secession crisis, FDR and the economic crisis. So that's one thing that I think a lot of people will be hoping for when they listen to a Biden inauguration. Um, not just can we fulfill the promise of unity, which is his theme, but what is the plan going forward, right? How do we speak to a country that is so deeply divided on uh, emotional grounds, associational, ideological, racial, geographical, all of those things are in the mix. As we're on the topic of, of those great divides and this partisanship that we're feeling in this moment, when else has the country been this divided on Inauguration Day? Are there others that, that have seen this kind of divide that we feel like we have right now? There are lots of periods of deep division in American history. Uh, I've talked about some of them um, in the partisan splits after the constitutional period, certainly the 1850s when the country um, was increasingly riveted on the question of slavery. Uh, after the turn of the century when there was deep division, particularly after the United States entered World War I, at the height of the Cold War when there might have been agreement about the threat of communism abroad, but the deep fear of communism domestically threatened to tear Americans apart. And then the one that is most often referenced by people who are still living is 1968. Um, and the way in which the Vietnam War and domestic unrest even ripped apart the Democratic Party. Um, and so there are certainly moments of intense partisan division. Uh, these things also, I think, go through cycles, right? There's a kind of intense emotional attachment to politics over very, very real issues. I'm not trying to minimize that. But then you see periods where those heightened tensions lessen to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's a good reminder that this is not necessarily an unprecedented uh, moment in history, that we have seen these great divides before. Yes, and there's something else I've been thinking a lot about, given the events of January 6th, and uh, people ask me, when have we been so divided? And when we look at our history and see long periods of what we might call relative calm, we need to remember that those periods of relative calm came at a time when a large segment of the population had no access to the polls and no political power. So yes, the American South was relatively calm and dominated by the Democratic Party for a century, but that's because the African-American population had no power to vote. And so to some degree, I don't wanna say that I'm hopeful necessarily by the division, but part of what we see, especially in light of the protests of last summer is an increasing willingness to address deep issues of economic and racial inequality. And that is uncomfortable. So it might be that within this deep division, there is a kind of ray of, of hope for how we might talk about these issues. 
Yeah, I think that is, I think the points that you made are so illustrative of the fact that there's a really good reason to look at these things in terms of a historical perspective instead of just like living in the bubble of now and and what we're experiencing now. I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that people have really been talking about in terms of this inauguration, which is President Trump's decision not to attend. So in recent memory, for me at least, this is not something that I've seen. I'm curious if looking back further, this is actually unprecedented or if this is something that we've seen before and if it holds any particular significance. Well, and it's a it's a disappointment, right, because I think that for the current president to attend the inauguration would be uh, at least an incremental gesture toward recognizing what actually happened last November, but that's not going to happen. So I'm encouraged that Vice President Pence made the decision to attend, but it's not unprecedented. John Adams, after he lost to Jefferson in that protracted electoral process, recognized Jefferson's victory, but chose to leave Washington rather than to attend. And in fact, his son, John Quincy Adams, decided not to attend when he lost the election to Andrew Jackson in 1828. Uh, I believe Andrew Johnson did not attend uh, Grant's inauguration in 1868. Um, so there are precedents where this has occurred. Uh, it must be very difficult to be the defeated, but in American history, of course, this has become accustomed. And like we said at the beginning, there's a reason for it, right? It may be symbolic, but we realize how important it is when it's breached, when it's violated. Right. It goes back to that value of the peaceful transition of power. Exactly. So shifting to a sort of different note, hopefully a little bit of a lighter note, uh, inaugural speeches are sometimes remembered long after they're given. They make the history books. So what elements of these speeches make them so memorable and what are some that really stick with you? Well, I've talked about some of the leaders, and it'll be no surprise that I'm going to mention some of their inaugural addresses. Uh, like I said, these are moments when you see the transition from one party to another and which come in the midst of a crisis. Um, I mentioned Lincoln's first inaugural, where he lays out his insistence that slavery will not extend into the West and his insistence that the union is perpetual, as he says, which is unbreakable. And those become cornerstones of the Civil War. On those two things, he will not compromise. In 1933, FDR reassures Americans quite boldly that the only thing they have to fear is fear itself. And yet in the next line, he does something remarkable. He acknowledges just how bad things are. And when you read it, it's really kind of frightening. But at the same time, when you hear people respond to that at the time in letters, which they wrote to FDR by the thousands, they say, thank you for acknowledging the depth of the crisis, the severity of it. Because after acknowledging the depth of the crisis, FDR goes on to say, I'm going to treat this emergency as if we were invaded by a foreign power. That's how seriously I take this. And for Americans to hear that the executive branch would address the crisis with that level of vigor, even though he didn't know how he was going to do it, was enormously reassuring. They really did believe that capitalism itself was imploding. And of course, the signs were that it had. But the one I really want to linger on for a minute is one that gets a little bit less attention. The most important inaugural address, in my view, in American history is also the shortest. And that's the one that Abraham Lincoln gives in March of 1865. 
Here we are in the closing weeks of the war. Of course, he doesn't know this, but within a month, he himself will be assassinated. He takes that opportunity in the second inaugural not to outline what he will do or what has been done, but he does something that no other president before or since has done. He takes the opportunity to reflect in a deeply serious and dark way about the sin of slavery. And that suggests to the American public that hundreds of thousands of lives may have been lost, in fact, as a punishment for centuries of profiting off of enslaved labor. It's a very difficult address to read, not for the language, but for the implications. In other words, he says, this is all of our responsibility. All of us are implicated in this. And it's an inscrutable address and it's a difficult one, but it's one that I think students really appreciate for its poetry, for its sadness, but also for the idea that with this punishment, we might see ourselves toward redemption and toward a future that is freer and more equal. I mean, it seems like these really powerful addresses come at moments where the country is facing some difficulty. Like there, there are many inaugural addresses that we kind of forget that don't get talked about. (laughs) So Biden is certainly in a position that is difficult and the country is in a divided place. Um, What what do you expect to hear from him or what do you hope to hear from him? Well, that's a good question. And I've been asked that a lot in the past few weeks. Um, I think knowing Biden um, and his history, his commitment to institutions, we might hear a little bit of that faith in government, an attempt to restore faith. And we, we heard some of that during the campaign. He is not a renegade. <laughs> he is not anti-Washington. He does not run against Washington. But I think, and that's what I'll pivot to here, what you're going to hear from Biden is also a degree of expectation that the hard work ahead of us is not of our elected officials, but is of us. In other words, he might um, lay out for the country a sense of renewed responsibility. And of course, others have done this. He might key off John Kennedy um, in terms of um, asking Americans what they can do for their country. I think Biden too might say that, yes, the the government is here for you and will hear very ambitious plans about helping people in need, dire need, deathly need. But I wonder if he might also ask us to reflect on how we consider ourselves citizens as well as Americans. Interesting. Well, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Yes. Historians are terrible predictors, so remember (laughs) that. (laughs) I mean, I'm curious if this one will be one that we remember because it seems like given the the moments that you've talked about, this kind of fits the bill. It's It's a huge transition from one party to another at a time when Americans at least feel like we're more divided than ever. So... It does have the potential, and it's interesting that you said that some seem to make it into the history books, right, while others sort of trail off into very nice affirmations, but nothing really memorable. Absolutely. So before I let you go, I wanted to pivot to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is this idea of the first 100 days in office, because the inauguration is obviously this big moment, but it's really everything that comes after that makes a presidency. So... Is this myth of the first 100 days worth placing any value in? Oh, that's a nice question because it has since 1933 become part of the commentariats uh, 
um, observations, right? What's gonna be the first 100 days agenda? And I have to remind people, of course, that what FDR was doing in 1933 was asking Congress <laughs> to enter into a session of 100 days and to step up. Um, but of course, because it's been repeated over and over, it has become the benchmark by which presidents are measured. I would say that most presidents don't achieve their greatest victories uh, or agendas in that 100 days. You might see a flurry of legislation, and of course we know the crises that we're up against here, particularly the vaccine rollout. But the most durable and long-lasting achievements come later in a presidency. Um, so if I want to go back to Lincoln, you'll see that the big legislation came in the midst of the Civil War, and it had to do with the West. Uh, under FDR, the big achievements came not in 1933. Much of that legislation was declared unconstitutional or invalid but it came in 1935 with major labor rights legislation and the creation of social security. So I would say that a lot of very short-term things will happen in that first hundred days, but we might have to wait a while to see the more durable legislative achievements as he builds relationships on Capitol Hill. We've had this whole conversation now. I'm wondering if it sparked anything else that you wanted to chat about. Well, only that I was really reminded of um, the way that Biden is, is very much, and not by choice probably, because of the situation demands it, really doubling down on the idea that there is a place for government in a crisis. And I'm, I wanna say two things about that. One is there's a long history of that, right? Like I said, um, uh, Lincoln and the West, uh, FDR and executive relief and um, legislation, uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, but there is also a degree to which that is very controversial, right? We are not uh, a country that necessarily agrees. In fact, the last 20 or 30 years, the Republican party has really made clear um, its deep and abiding rejection, right? Of, of uh, large government. So I think it's fascinating that Biden has proposed that and I will be even more interested to see how it moves forward in such a fraught and divided populace should be interesting. Thank you so much, Susan. This has been so interesting. And I think it's so nice to have a historical context to these things because it really does give us a sense of where we've been and where we're going uh, and, and helps us get out of this moment that feels kind of difficult right now. It does feel difficult. <laughs> You're right, right. And history can help us. Not always in the direct and obvious ways, but it, like you said, the key word here is it gives us context and it gives us lineage. For a bit more detail on Lincoln's 1861 inauguration and other historical tidbits from Susan, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. James Swearingen arranged our theme. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Alyssa Hurst, Radio Ed's executive producer and today's host. This is Radio Ed. Radio Ed.